1: Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise, packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a concise curriculum. We've created one of the premier men's lifestyle programs available anywhere, and it's free. This is a show that we wish we had a decade ago. Now, this show is about you, and we're here to help you become the best man you can be in every area of your life. So make sure to stay up to date with everything going on here, as well as getting some killer free stuff by signing up for the newsletter at theartofcharm.com. If you're new to the show but you want to know more about what we teach here at The Art of Charm, check out the toolbox at theartofcharmpodcast.com slash toolbox. That's where we've got the fundamentals of dating and attraction such as body language, eye contact, vocal tonality, even relationship management and breakups. That stuff is all obviously extremely important to your success, so make sure you get a handle on that as well. We've also got our boot camps and our live training running every single week here in Hollywood, California. Details on that at theartofcharm.com. Or just give us a call or even email me, Jordan H at The Art of Charm, and I'll tell you exactly what you need to know to get started with that. I'm looking forward to meeting all you guys here at The Art of Charm. Today we're talking with a friend of mine. He's actually a monk, which is interesting. His name is Dapani. He's a Hindu monk with an engineering degree who spent 10 years in a monastery as a celibate monk coding websites. You heard me. He was coding websites in a monastery as a monk. We're gonna talk about the process of becoming a monk from becoming an engineer, the process of becoming an entrepreneur from a monk, and how spiritual folks and even monks are just real people and making the process of becoming more intentional something relatable that anyone can do. We're also gonna talk about how to develop willpower, how to make sure your children don't suck all the energy out of your relationship, and eliminating energy vampires in our lives. So enjoy this one with Don DePani. self helpy people say all the time because they're like, look at how positive I am. I haven't been sick in 16 years. And it's like, "Mm, I'm pretty sure you're just ignoring it.
0: Yeah, no, you know, uh, I, I was so blessed to live with my guru in the monastery as a monk. And he was probably one of the most, at least in Hinduism, he was considered one of the greatest spiritual leaders of our time. But he was the most human person I know. And he would look at me and go, my stomach doesn't feel well. And, you know, he'd have gas and this (laughs) and that. And he'd just be a regular dude,
1: you know? That's awesome because it's so non-pretentious, right? It is. And he never spoke in a very soft, gentle way, you know?
0: Right. He just talked like a normal person. And and that's what I really loved about him. And because so many people in this so-called spiritual wellness industry always portray this perfectness, you know? To maintain their brand or whatever.
1: Yeah, and 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 you know what? It just well maybe it's doing exactly what they want it to do. But for someone like me, it just goes. You know what? I'm never going to be at the level where I'm like, I'm totally fine. I just got hit by a car, but I'm fine. Nothing ever goes wrong in my life, and it just seems unrelatable and strange. And I'm I'm sure some people who are kind of like perpetual truth seekers and always have to find the way are are like, oh, this guy figured it out. But for me. What's that quote, run for people that claim to have found the truth and, and align yourself with those who are seeking for it? I think I just did that backwards. Have you heard that?
0: Uh, I haven't heard that, but I kind of like it. <laughs> and I think I get what you're trying to say. Yeah it's, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's like the YouTube videos you watch sometimes too. And, you know, people get on there and they're totally inspired and happy and their life is perfect. And I'm
1: going like,
0: well, oh, that's not real. How can it be like this all the time? You know, Can you just be normal and talk to me in a normal way?
1: Yeah. Well, it's it's like I don't want to be here for the other part of your bipolar. <laughs> <laughs> where you're not making YouTube videos. or so the, the next video where you're like life isn't worth living, everything is so cuz whenever you're that high, I mean oh, totally. My spirituality begins and probably ends at there's a balance to everything. So if you're super stoked every time I see you, I just assume that you're going home and like crying and yeah. drinking yourself to sleep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: And if you ask me how many times I feel down and sad, I'll tell you honestly, there's been a lot of times. And last week I had an absolute shit week. And did I feel inspired? No, not at all.
1: (laughs) That's really funny. Good. And so tell us who you are a little bit. I mean, I, I met you at an EO event. Oh, and by the way, I've been making my bed ever since the event. I did it every day.
0: I am very proud of you. It's, yeah. uh, it's not an easy task, is it?
1: It sounds so No, it's not easy. I think there's probably one or two days where I like got up because my mom called and was like, hey, can you check something? And I maybe forgot that day, but I can't point my finger on a day that I actually forgot. That's um, really
0: great. Uh, actually, someday a friend of mine sent me a message on Facebook, apparently, Tim Ferriss' latest podcast. He mentions in there that he how he's been making his bed ever since he heard my talk.
1: Yeah. No, I, I read that and I went, I wonder if he got that from Don DePani, or if, it, if somebody else is going around stealing the bed making idea. You know what though? We have a lot of military and special forces clients at the art of charm at our life programs and they always make their bed. And I thought, well, yeah, you're used to it. Some drill sergeant probably yelled at you and they go, well, it's not only that, but you wake up and you make your bed. You've already accomplished something for the day. And I thought that was kind of a cool way to look at it too.
0: It is. You're basically setting uh, a precedence for the day, you know. It's, and the way we were trained in the monastery is that you have your mind, you have your body, and you have your emotions. But you actually own them as opposed to they own you. But at any given point in time during the day, somebody has to be driving the plane or flying the plane. So it's either the pilot's flying the plane or it's on autopilot. So if you're not telling your mind, body, and emotions that you're in charge, then they take charge of you based on your subconscious patterns that you've put into place before. So when you wake up in the morning and you say, I'm going to make my bed and this is what I want to do today, then naturally your mind, body and emotions just follow your instructions. And then eventually it just gets to the point where they wait for you for instructions before they do anything. And for most people is they don't get any instructions. So then they look at the default patterns of the last 20 years and they go, well, Every day he likes to wake up and scratch his butt, so we'll just scratch his butt and then move on to the next thing.
1: <laughs> right, because at first when you told me, I was like, I don't really get what this is, but I'm going to do it anyway because what what do I have to lose from making my bed? It's something my mom tried to get me to do until I moved out of the house and it, I'm 34. I can start making my bed now. And you're right, it is true because you start doing things more intentionally right from the beginning of the day. You're right, you could get up and just scratch your butt and then walk around or Or people have worse habits, unfortunately. Uh, You know, i lived with a lot of clients from the Art of Charm, and I saw how people live pretty intimately. And some guys get up, open up an energy drink, go out on the balcony, smoke a couple of cigarettes, come back in, wash their hands, maybe brush their teeth if they're at that level, and then make a cheese, bacon, and sausage sandwich for breakfast or something. That's not really a great start to the day because by 9.30 9.30 a.m. they're like, ugh, I need a nap and I feel disgusting and I already smell and you know, nobody wants to be around me.
0: No, exactly. And it's basically really understanding that the mind, body and emotions are, are tools of yours as opposed to you. And if you look at that as uh, something separate to you and that you actually have control over them, then what you want to do is throughout the day, just exit that control over those components. Exert control over our emotions? Yeah, over our emotions, over our mind, and over our body. Because the body will tell you at some point and say, oh, you know, I want to take a nap, or I don't want to run that extra five minutes, I'm too tired, I don't want to go to the gym. And that's when you say, no, I'm going to go to the gym. When you think that you are actually the body, that's when it becomes much harder. When you think that you live in the body, and the body is something that you reside inside, then you can start to take control of it. I remember my guru told me a, a great story and he, we lived in Hawaii. That's where the monastery was. And in the afternoon, he would go swimming in the ocean. You know, he was 50 years older than me. I think he was about 74 years old at the time. And he said one day he was just about to get in the water and, and his body told him, you know, don't really feel like a swim today. Why don't we just skip it? And he said to his body, sure, we can skip the swim, but let's just do 50 push push-ups instead. And his body replied, yeah, you know, why don't we go for the swim?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Sounds better than the push ups. It Whatever. does. And and it might sound strange to some people that, you know, you're having a conversation with your body, but you do. And and to be honest with you, Jordan, you know, I try to go to the gym maybe three, four times a week. And almost every single time my body's trying to tell me, Oh, you know, down the point and want to just skip it today. You're so tired, you worked hard, maybe you don't feel
1: so good. So here's a reason why you shouldn't bother doing this for yourself, right? Exactly.
0: Right. You know, like, you know, you worked so hard, why don't you not eat healthy today and just binge on, on junk food? Sounds good when you say it like that. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds really great. It's really convincing and that's part of your mind that's having that dialogue with you. So I think understanding the separation between your mind, your body, and your emotions and you creating that precedence in the morning by just even making the bed, but you know, as what we talked about at the event in uh, Palo Alto, uh, part of making the bed is part of the concept of finishing what you begin. And every time you finish what you begin, you actually develop your willpower. And that's really the reason that I was teaching people to finish what, um, to make the bed in the morning so that they can learn to finish what they begin. And by doing that, just develop their willpower throughout the whole day.
1: Excellent. Yeah, I, I love that a lot. It makes a lot of sense. But first, right now, people are going, who is this guy with the Sri Lankan accent? Why, why should we listen to him? You know, tell us a little bit about what you did, because your story was really interesting, especially because when you think of Hindu priest or monk or monastery, you don't think of what, you know, you guys had going on in Hawaii.
0: No, no, not at all. Yeah, so a quick, really brief summary. I am of Sri Lankan ancestry. I was uh, born in Malaysia. That's where I spent my early childhood. Uh, My family migrated to Australia, so I went to high school there. I went to university, uh, graduated with an engineering degree. And as soon as I found out I passed my last exam, I jumped on a plane and flew to Hawaii where I lived lived in a traditional Hindu monastery as a celibate monk uh, for 10 years, Uh, Then about six years ago, my vows expired, and uh, instead of moving back to Australia, I moved to the mainland U.S., and I've been uh, in New York here for the last five of those years. And and Jordan, you heard when I spoke at the event in Palo Alto, where we first met, that uh, every person that goes to join the monastery and is accepted as a monk uh, gets a set of robes, set of beads, earrings, and a
1: MacBook Pro. What's up with the MacBook Pro? Everyone's going, I'm not sure I heard that correctly. Yes, a MacBook Pro. How my guru looked at technology
0: was that he just looked at it as a modern tool. So his goal was to take ancient teachings that were basically timeless and share it with the modern world. So instead of scribing it into a stone tablet like they used to thousands of years ago, we just scribed it onto a digital tablet and uh, put it online, the monastery, I believe at one time. And... I, I know at one time I had the largest website in the state of Hawaii. They might still do. Uh, the monks started blogging when blogging wasn't even popular in the mid-90s. And I've been blogging every single day since then. Um, wow. Street And Facebook. And uh, they're very savvy. So everybody gets a Mac and we're trained how to use it. we very savvy with all the Adobe products of InDesign and Photoshop and Illustrator. We can edit movies in Final Cut Pro and sound booth and uh, we know html css javascript and we program and code and yeah do all kinds of things
1: because when you think monastery you think cut off from the outside world they don't even know the news they never heard of what's going on and meanwhile it's like status update we just finished our first website and everyone's <laughs> connected maybe no smartphones to interrupt the flow of work out all day right Oh, well, John, I hate to break the news to you, but we, when the iPhones came out, we all had an iPhone, too. That's amazing. Do you get a discount from Apple for being at a monastery? Is that considered the educational discount?
0: I think we got an educational nonprofit discount, but you'd be interested to know that Apple uh, did, a, I think, a six or seven-minute documentary on the monastery, I believe, in the early 90s. And I actually have that documentary with me on my computer. Yeah, and they did a whole whole story of these monks with Max. But basically the bottom line is that, you know, we engaged with the world, we, we watched TV every day, so we saw about half an hour of the news every day just to keep up with what the rest of the world was up to. Sure. But we stayed at the same time disconnected in the world, so we didn't follow popular music or TV or shows and things like that. We did watch movies occasionally that were selected by one of the monks. <laughs> so, you know, but by, by having technology, technology is so beautiful and so wonderful. And I love technology. And I think what we were trained in a monastery was to learn how to use technology as opposed to allow technology to use us, which I think is what's happening in today's world. Technology controls most people's life as opposed to it being the other way around.
1: Yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, even for me, I'm very conscious of this process. I was out to dinner with my aunt, uncle, my second, third cousin, once removed, or whatever you call it, my girlfriend, and I put my phone down because I knew it would distract me, and I felt this, this thing has a tractor beam. Apple puts tractor beams in their devices because I was fighting the whole time. It was face down, the screen wasn't lighting up, nothing was happening with the phone, but I was like, any lull for one second in a conversation, it was like, now's the time I would check my phone. Wait, nope, don't do that. And I had to consciously just repel the phone, and I realize how much of an addiction this thing has been. And it's not the first time I've realized it, but it's, it's definitely not getting any better, even though I'm trying to make a conscious effort with it. Maybe it's getting a shred better, but I'm definitely becoming more aware of how tough it is to stay away from the darn thing.
0: It is. And I have a pretty strict rule myself whenever I meet with clients or friends or family or Go out for dinner with my wife. Uh, I totally put the phone away. The phone actually sits in my pocket. I, I don't turn it off. It's in my pocket, and but I just don't allow the phone to be on the table because every time it buzzes or lights up, you want to look at it. And I'm there actually to have a conversation. I have a meal with the person I'm with, and whoever's trying to reach me, you can wait, get in basically. And I feel that if we allow technology to control us, then we start to destroy our relationships and so many relationships. It's just not so strong today because of technology and how technology interferes and is a big part of that.
1: Sure. Yeah. I, th- I think it probably interferes a lot with not only learning and productivity at work, but with social engagement. And so you, you grew up in Sri Lanka, you got an engineering degree. Why did you jump to a monastery right after your exams? I mean, I can understand being a little disillusioned with a job after a year or two, but you didn't even get that far. It was like engineering and I'm out of here.
0: Yes, I actually wanted to be a monk since I was four years old, and uh, I had met a monk who had came to our home in Malaysia, and uh, as soon as I saw him, I realized that was me. Uh, I didn't know he was a monk; I just recognized the robes, the beads, and the markings on his forehead and everything. And uh, from ever since then, it was just really basically been uh, a pursuit to to find out more about it. And then by six, seven years old, I came to realize it wasn't really about being a monk; it was really about finding my purpose in life and what my purpose in life I realized at that point was enlightenment I was looking for enlightenment and I realized that being a monk was the most efficient way to get to enlightenment. So at that point was trying to find a teacher and I met many many wonderful teachers along the way but uh, a lot of them had said had great things to say. but one of the biggest struggles I had with them was that I'd go listen to them, be totally inspired and motivated, I'd send it and do everything they told me, and I'd do it for about three, four days. And then all the inspiration and motivation would die away. I'd default back to who I was. And after a few years, I said, you know, to myself, I, I don't really want to be inspired, and I don't want to be motivated. I'm quite inspired by myself. Just give me something to do. Give me practical, simple tools that I can apply in my everyday life. And that's really what I wanted. And it wasn't until I was 21 that I met my guru who... I thought was another one of those inspiring teachers, but uh, fortunately he was not. And uh, he had some amazing practical, simple tools and his views on spirituality and money and entrepreneurship and everything was just mind blowing to me. He he was a monk, yet he was so grounded and down to earth, uh, non pretentious. And uh, I said, I'll be a monk in his order because I wanted to be a monk and I was just really looking for a monastery to join. He would not let me join the monastery until I finished my engineering degree. So I had to drag myself through another two and a half years of engineering school. Then, as soon as I knew I passed my last exam, I jumped on a plane and left Australia.
1: Wow. Why? Wow. Why wouldn't he? Le- Why did he want you to finish school? You
0: know, I don't know. I Never really asked him, but he wanted me to do it, and I always tried
1: to be an obedient student. And Wow. Interesting. So once you got to the monastery, what was the most striking thing? I mean, was there anything there that shocked you, even though you kind of knew what you were getting into?
0: Really hard. You know, people have so many false concepts of monks because they watch David Carradine and Kung Fu. Right. And they think monks talk slowly and say grasshopper all the time. Yeah. And they can walk on water and they sweep the sidewalks really slowly and they meditate all day. And, and it was contrary to that. And maybe they do it at other monasteries, but not in ours. My guru was extremely practical. We, we meditated only one hour a day as monks. And a lot of people thought only one hour, not the whole day. My guru didn't believe in quantity. He believed in quality. So what he taught us was to meditate as a group for one hour. And then the rest of the day, while we worked on our Macs, we learned to develop skills like concentration and willpower. And while we swept the floor, cleaned the bathrooms and did our regular chores, cooking, um, we brought our tools and practices into our everyday life. Basically, he looked at the 23 hours of the day as a preparation for the one hour of meditation. So we prepare for 23 hours, then we sit down for one hour and meditate. And when you sit down for one hour, it becomes a really awesome meditation because you spend 23 hours getting ready for it.
1: Excellent. It- yeah, that makes a lot of sense because you're already kind of geared up, ready to go. It's kind of like your bed's ready to be slept in because you made it.
0: Exactly. And a lot of people come up to me, Jordan, and say, you know, I'm really stressed. I want to take out meditation. Can you teach me a meditation technique? I can do it 10 minutes a day. My first question to them is, what are you going to do the remaining 23 hours and fifty minutes? If you're going to be distracted and crazy for the rest of the day, then the 10 minutes is not going to help you at all. It's like exercising for 10 minutes and then the remaining, the rest of the day, you're just eating burgers and fries and pizza and just sitting on your couch. <laughs>
1: Sure. And then you throw in some celery and you're like, that should balance everything out.
0: Exactly. Right. So I would say the the practicality of uh, uh, monastic living, the simplicity, and simplicity doesn't, um, that's one of the big things I learned, that simplicity doesn't mean that it has to be poor conditions. You know, you can still have a wonderful surrounding, you can still have the best Mac or a lovely apartment, but still keep it simple. And I think people are always confuse that. They feel simplicity means giving up everything and not having something that's nice, and it doesn't mean that at all. You can still be simple and have beautiful things and beautiful people in your life.
1: So why did you go from monastery then to New York? I mean, you'd think you might want to like take it easy and start in Santa Monica or something, right? How come you went from... Chill actually, monastery to Metropolis.
0: I actually did start in Santa Monica. Jordan strange that you said that. Oh, you did. Uh, oh man. I did, yeah. Well, so normally what happens if you you're long serving, long term serving monk and you leave the monastery? There's a severance package, <laughs> and uh, my severance package was uh, they gave me a thousand dollars cash, uh, my robes, my beads, and a MacBook Pro, and they normally buy you a ticket back home. So they were going to fly me back to Western Australia, and I said no, I didn't want to go there. Um, I said, I want to go to the mainland. So they bought me a ticket to Los Angeles. So I at least told them I wanted to go to Los Angeles. And and that's where I flew. And I landed in LA at midnight and um, checked into a backpacker motel in Santa Monica uh, that same night. And I roomed with uh, six German backpackers. And um, that's where I started my life. And I had $1,000 with me. And the next morning, I went out and bought clothes. and I mean, regular people's clothes. Right an email address and opened a bank account and kind of got set up. And it wasn't until a year later that I moved to New York City. And my goal was basically not to borrow money from anybody and use everything that I learned to create the business that I have now to, to be an entrepreneur. And I felt very confident that with everything that I've been trained in, I, I could create the life that I want. And one reason for choosing New York City was when I lived in a monastery in Hawaii, uh, I was on the island of Kauai. Uh, A lot of people would come there and when they heard the monks teach, they would say, well, it's so easy for you to practice this. You live in a serene, peaceful monastery on a beautiful island in Hawaii. You don't know what it's like to live in New York or London or Beijing. So when I left, I said, I'm going to go live in New York City, create my life there, be an entrepreneur have a family, and and then share what I learned. And nobody can have a reason then to complain to me that they can't
1: do it. Right. Yeah, exactly. Because then you can can say, I do know what it's like, because I live in New York slash Santa Monica with a wife and kids.
0: Right. No kids yet. but, uh, But yeah, no, the whole idea is that, you know, it's like, can you be an entrepreneur? Can you have your own business, multiple business? And can you live the life that you want to live? I think you can. It's just, do you want to commit to it? You know, how badly do you want it is what it really comes down to, you
1: know, Jordan? Yeah, sure,
0: of course. Most people people... don't want it badly enough, to be honest.
1: No, they want to have a title as entrepreneur and put CEO on their LinkedIn profile or work from home and not have a boss and emphasis on not having a boss and just being at home and not having to go to an office, but they don't really want the responsibility that goes in line with creating, to put it dramatically, your own destiny, right, and your own outcomes.
0: At the end of the day, our our future completely lays in our hands and what we do. So uh, I feel it can be done, and I want to be an example of that.
1: That doesn't mean I'm perfect at it. Sure. Well, yeah, work in progress, right? And what you were teaching us at at the EO event, and what what we can talk a little bit about here as well, is managing that energy. I mean, you had mentioned something really brilliant, uh, before I forget, that I've been quoting all over the place, which is that and I'm, I am don't have kids either but you've got kind of a hierarchy of where your energy goes or will go as a parent and where it's like listen you know I love your mother more than I love you you're, you're talking about telling your kids this because somebody asked about parenting does this ring a bell and you were saying I love your mother more than I love you because kids will suck the energy out of you your whole life it totally does and you know
0: maybe it's not fair for me to say that that I don't have kids yet but uh that's what I will say to my kids and and the way to look at it is that kids just don't know any better. And, and if you look at it, if you allow me to be a little bit metaphysical, yeah. uh, Go for it. we all have energy inside of us. And a child's body is only so big, just two feet tall or three feet tall. And they have a lot of energy. And the reason children have a lot of energy is because they haven't developed two faculties. They haven't developed the intellectual part of themselves, which really comes about when they hit puberty, that early, that ego side where they start being concerned about what somebody thinks of them and how they look and this and that. And that's when they start worrying about life, you know, when they're three, four years old and running around, they don't really worry about life. So that once the intellectual part kicks in at puberty, so much energy is consumed through the intellect. And then of course at puberty, they develop the sexual functions as well. And then now they're starting to have sex, they're starting to masturbate all the energy away. And so most of the energy goes away, through the intellectual area or the sexual area, as soon as they hit puberty. So until that age, all that energy is just consumed. Uh, all that energy is contained in a tiny little body. So imagine you take a three-foot-tall body and you stick one million Duracell batteries in it. Mm-hmm. That if you ask a child to walk across the room or to go to the other end of the room, a child will not walk across the room. it will run he or she will run across the room, right?
1: Yeah, that's it's true. Because,
0: it's because they have so much energy inside themselves. And what parents never teach children is they don't teach children what to do with that energy. They just say, sit quietly, don't move, stop wiggling. And it doesn't work. How can you not wiggle when you've got a million cell batteries inside of you?
1: Right. You got a fire burning in there. It's got to go somewhere. It's like a steam engine.
0: And if you look at most adults, all the energy is consumed through the intellectual area of the mind where they worry, they fear concerns or through the sexual area of the body and adults are perpetually tired
1: yes that is true so you were talking with this guy at eo about managing his energy inside his relationship i think his question was probably something almost cliche like what do i do i don't have any energy left you know in my relationship because i have kids
0: right and the, the key is to understand that To create a hierarchy of uh, the division of your energy. So basically, in a family situation, the first person you want to give energy to is yourself. You should always be number one in your family. And the concept here is that if I can look after myself and get myself into a good good place, then I can be the, the best version of me to my spouse and to my children. But if I'm a mess, then my relationship with my spouse is a hot mess and my relationship with my children is a hot mess so it's the airplane syndrome you know when the oxygen mask comes down you put it on yourself first instead of your kids so look after yourself first the second place you want to invest energy in is with your spouse so make sure that you have time set aside every day for you and your spouse to actually exchange energy through conversation through sitting down sharing a cup of tea whatever it may be it could even be physical intimacy if that's if that's something that's needed but that time needs to be blocked out every day And then come your children because your children will be totally okay. And if the parents are okay, the children will be okay. I know this entrepreneur who just had his sixth kid. Oh, wow. Runs a really successful business, um, has six kids. And I asked him, I actually asked him, how do you do it? And he said, I told all my children, your mother is more important to me than you are. Your mother always comes first. And I go, that's great because that's the same philosophy that I believe in too. And he says, I take care of my wife, and as long as I take care of my wife, my children are okay. Sure, yeah. That's how he runs a successful business and raises three kids. And he, by no way, was trying to tell me his life was perfect and they didn't have challenges. But he's found a formula that works, and it's a formula that I truly believe in.
1: It makes a lot of sense, and right now some people are going, oh, that's terrible, you should never say that to a kid. I don't think kids really care. I think they're like, okay, (laughs) okay.
0: And the way he said it, too, and which I really liked, was he said that, you know, all of you will be with us, with your mom and me, till you're about 18. And then you go to college, and then you leave college, and you go work, and you have your own lives. And after you leave, your mom will still be by my side. Your mother will not leave me, nor will I leave your mother. But you're only here for a short period in your life, so I need to look after
1: your mother first. That makes sense. And of course, if they know their mother's being taken care of, who they love more than you, more than you anyway, <laughs> right? <laughs> then, then you're good. They totally get it. You're probably speaking their language.
0: Right. When parents tell me that, oh, you don't have children, you don't understand. I go like, no, you haven't trained your children. That's all. And if you train your children from an early age, that's all they know. And it's just need to, to instill this this hierarchy that, you know, when I'm speaking to your mother, I'm speaking to your mother. When I'm done speaking with your
1: mother, then we can have a conversation. You just need to wait your turn. Sure. Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense, and I think kids are probably going to fall right in line with that, and it makes perfect sense because you hear a lot about, and I get a lot of email about relationships that aren't working out or that have failed for some reason, and or the parents get divorced right after the kids leave the house, and that's some societal stuff, but I, I have a feeling, and I've seen it in email told to me explicitly, that, very matter-of-factly, that the reason is because once they had kids, they kind of ignored each other for the next 15 years, and no relationship can survive that.
0: Exactly. Even now, you know, I've been married to my wife for about two and a half years, and every Sunday is date day. So we take the day off, we hang out together, we don't talk to our friends on our cell phone. Every now and then we might do a party, might go to a party or something on Sunday, but Sunday is basically dedicated to both of us. Because the remaining six days, we work, we we socialize, we do all kinds of other things. And there needs to be one day where we actually work on our relationship. And I know that it's the only way my relationship will be strong 30 or 40 or 50 years from now is that if I put energy into it. And I have this conversation with entrepreneurs all the time. And I ask them, what if you took the same amount of energy you put into your relationship and you applied it to your business? Where would your business be today? And they go nowhere. Yeah. So how do you expect your relationship to be somewhere if you only put that finite amount of energy into it? When you said if you took that same amount of energy and put it into your business, it would go nowhere. And you're expecting your relationship to go somewhere when you're only investing so little into it? It doesn't make sense.
1: Yeah, because of course you're only going to get out what you put in. It's a cliche at this point, right?
0: Exactly. And that's just really how energy works. You know, if you understand everything in this universe is made up of energy, and that's something that Albert Einstein says, you know, he says that everything is energy and that's all there is to it. And if you understand the law of thermodynamics, you know you cannot create energy and you cannot destroy energy, but you can change it from one form to another and you can put it into one thing or take it out of another. And if you invest energy into something that thing is going to grow, whether it's a negative thing or positive thing, it doesn't really matter. So if I invest energy into negative habit patterns that I have, I'm going to have really good negative habit patterns one day. Right. And if I put energy, a lot of energy into a bad relationship in six months, I will have a really, really successful bad relationship.
1: (laughs) And we know that from brain science as well, we know that those neural pathways become stronger and stronger as you continue to repeat something and and a lot of that just comes down to habit right you're you're consistently waking up in the morning opening up a monster energy drink and smoking a unfiltered cigarette on the balcony you do that for a year well you've worked really hard at that you've put in your the first chunk of your 10,000 hours of mastering that particular activity
0: exactly and you're basically an expert at doing that, and if anybody wants to become good at that,
1: they should consult you. Right, exactly. And so, of course, working on things like a relationship, and and that's the main thing that you hear about is oh, the relationship we grew apart, and most of it's due to neglect. Uh, it, when when I talk to the clients, it's almost always just neglect, 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 and and some of it is benign neglect, if that's if that's a term that I can maybe coin here, because they're they're thinking our kids are the most important. I got to work really hard and get something together for the kids, and then sometimes they get divorced after the kids leave, but they're not necessarily fighting, it's not necessarily bad before that, it's just the kids leave and they look at each other and, and they go, what the hell, I don't even know you anymore, it's been so long, I don't even know you, and a year or two later, it's like, eh, let's just do our own thing, why do we, we're just roommates, why do we live together, this is silly.
0: You you run a podcast and you, hear, you get letters and emails from people telling you stuff, I'm a Hindu priest and former Hindu monk, I'm a walking confession booth. And I'm she, sure. People tell me all kinds of things. And I'll tell you one story. Uh, I know this couple who had their own business and they have two kids. And basically after about 13, I think, 12 or 13 years of being together, they finally got a divorce a few months ago. And I knew exactly why they got a divorce. I I talked to them. I uh, counseled the wife. And uh, the main reason was when the children were born, they put all their energy into growing their business and the remaining of the energy into looking after their children. And they did not invest energy into each other. And then naturally the relationship falls apart. It's like if you have a plant and you don't water it, it's not going to grow. So all the energy was divided between work and children. And eventually the whole thing just fell apart.
1: All right, back to the show. So there's other things in our, in our lives, though, that suck energy away from us. And sometimes, and I get emails like this, of course, and I'm sure you do too, that they're, they might even be your own family members. You might have a brother, sister, bad seed child, uh, spouse, et cetera. You know, you, you might have something that is sucking energy away from you. Call them energy vampires. Right, energy vampire. That's a you know really common term for somebody who just constantly is dragging you down, and, and you might not even realize it, right? They come in different forms. Somebody who requires a lot of attention might be an energy vampire. Somebody who causes drama in your life might be an energy vampire. Somebody who's always down and leans on you to bring them back up might be an energy vampire. Somebody who creates some sort of worry in your life because maybe they ask you for money and you feel like, it could be your parents, maybe they ask you for money and you feel like you have to give it to them for them to love you or you know you feel like you have to because they raised you that could be an energy vampire. Do you think everybody has these? I mean, can, is this something that's universal?
0: Uh, You know, John and I travel all around the world and I I speak to so many different groups like EO and YPO and WPO and different organizations as well. And I always ask this question because it's part of a topic that I cover in my, in my workshop. And I ask people, how many of you have energy vampires in your life? And almost 99% of everybody in the room puts their hand up. And I think Almost everybody does unless you've been really good at slaying the vampires. And I've worked very hard over the last few years to kill off all my vampires in a very affectionate way. Yeah. And uh, so I can honestly say at this present point in my life, I don't have vampires, but vampires tend to accumulate over time. So what I always recommend to people is to do an evaluation once a year. And what I do is at the end of the year, I evaluate the circle of people in my life And I break them into categories of vampires and non vampires, to put it really simply. And I make a list of all the vampires in my life. And when you identify a vampire, it's really important to identify if their vampirism quality, there's such a word, is an inherent part of their nature, or is it something that's a byproduct of what they're going through in their life right now? So, for example, somebody lost a spouse in a in an accident and now they're feeling really depressed and really needy for a couple of years, you wouldn't want to turn them a vampire because, you know, they're going through some unfortunate life circumstance and it's a good time to be a good friend and have sure. comp- compassion. But if somebody is inherently a vampire who has always been sucking your energy for the last 30 years, then it's good to really identify those people and then slowly start to, to detach from them
1: what does that detachment process look like? Because I always recommend, hey, there's going to be negative people in your life or energy vampires in your life or people that don't like the changes you're making in your own life and are trying to drag you back down and they go, I'll, I'll get emails like, that was really great, that was really useful, I got rid of a lot of my negative friends, here's the problem, my mom is one of them, I can't ditch my mom, you know? And 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 it can become really tough, especially for younger guys or for guys that have been friends with people their whole life, they're looking for guidance on how this detachment process might work, because it's really easy to just not call that guy that lives down the hall again or not hang out with that guy from the gym who used to play basketball with who complained about his ex-wife all the time. But it might be a lot harder if one is your brother and the other one is your dad.
0: No, I totally understand, and that definitely is a much more difficult situation. I think the first thing to come to realization, to is in a case like this is to realize that life is finite. I don't believe life is short. I believe it's finite. And if you really value your life, you realize that you're only here on this planet for a finite amount of time. And once you understand that concept, you start to take your life really seriously. If there are things that you want to accomplish and do in your life, then you don't allow people to pull you back or destroy those dreams of yours. And those people could even be your parents, your siblings, relatives, or friends. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean somebody is your parent or your sibling. They have the right to drag you down and make you feel bad about yourself. They don't. I'm not an American citizen, but as far as I know, I don't think there's anything in the Constitution of the United States Mm of America that says that, you know, a father is allowed to beat up on
1: his child. Emotionally or physically, right? Or mentally or verbally. Right, right. Absolutely. So why do
0: you allow that? So the way I look... Obviously, as you said, it's easier to detach away from from your neighbor or somebody you went to school with, or whatever it's your family members or siblings, the way I look at it is I try and define how bad is the damage. Is it tolerable or not tolerable? So if the cumulative effect of their presence in your life is destructive to your growth, Then you need to practice what I call, uh, what my guru taught me to call it, affectionate detachment and totally cut them off. But if their presence in your life is a little bit of a pain, but it's not really enough to hold you back from going forward, then it's okay to have them in your life. The ideal scenario is that you want to maintain the family, right? You never want to break the family circle up if you can. That's the ideal and that's how I draw the line. I have a couple of relatives who I feel are vampires, but their vampire presence isn't so strong to the point where it affects my life on a daily basis or holds me back from doing what I'm doing. Okay. So, so I allow them to be relatives and engage with them periodically. And and then there's one person, one relative who I've completely cut off from my life and I haven't spoken to in well, maybe 13 or 14 years. Not a single word, no exchange at all, because perpetually negative, perpetually bringing you down, never uplifting. And I worked so hard on my life and I've sacrificed so much of my life to really uplift myself and make myself a better person. Why should I
1: allow somebody to come and and destroy that, even if it's a family member? I mean, that is completely true and and very interesting because a lot of people are afraid to cut off their family members, et cetera, et cetera. What's the system like for cutting someone off? I mean, is there a way to do it sort of tactfully? Do you tell them about it? Do you just avoid them? Do you tell them why you're avoiding them? How does that system look?
0: The good rule is to not have a conversation with a vampire. And if somebody is inherently a vampire, and that's their quality, and they really have that, having a conversation with them is just only going to make the situation much, much worse. So it's better just to not have a conversation with them at all. What you want to practice is the concept of affection and detachment. The first step really from detaching yourself from anybody is to stop thinking about them. Uh, This is something we covered at the EO event that I spoke at, uh, and it's a very brief concept here I'll share with you. The concept is where awareness goes, energy flows. So if your awareness is going to that person, that's where your energy is flowing. If your energy is flowing towards that person, you're building a magnetic tie. You can almost imagine like a invisible energetic tube connecting you and that person. And through that energetic tube, energy flows between you and them and it creates a magnetic pull towards each other. So the first step of really stepping away from somebody is to stop thinking about them. Every time you start thinking about them, bring your awareness back and say, I'm not going to think about them. And and by doing that, you're not investing energy into that particular area of your mind. And as soon as you put energy into it, it starts to grow and you build that relationship. And then the next case is And as I said, most times you can never talk to these people because they'll react in a really negative way. The best thing to do is just to minimize the interaction, even if it's a family member. And at some point, you might even have to clearly state to them, I no longer want to talk to you. I actually know someone very well who said to their mother, "Uh, I don't ever want to talk to you again, unless you're willing to be kind, gentle, and loving. And until you're willing to do that, we're not going to interact with each other anymore. It was a very tough decision for her to make, but I truly admire her for making that because it's a tremendous amount of courage. And I saw how her life has changed ever since she made that decision. She's finally been able to be free of all that negativity and now has created an amazing life for herself. But how many people have the courage to do that?
1: Yeah, probably not that many. I think that's somewhere where where you got to look and say... Again, you know, who's more important? You might feel guilty about it, but at the end of the day, if you're dragging an anchor for your whole life, that's a serious strain. And, and I think people only think about themselves when they're doing this, and not in a selfish way. They're, they're actually very unselfish because they're thinking, oh, I don't want my mother to feel bad, but think about this. And this is something that happened when, when I was younger, is my, my mom was always really tired because she was dealing with my grandmother who was dealing with my mom's brother who was a total, like, jerk. He was like a credit card fraud type guy, just not a good person. My mom ended up putting him in jail, but it stressed her out. My grandmother was constantly defending the guy, trying to bail him out, trying to get him out of the trouble, even though he was stealing from her. So I was suffering a lot of the consequences as like a 13 year old kid because of something that my shithead uncle was doing. And so my mom, of course, later on, finally looked at it and went, oh, wait, this is screwing up my own family, not just me you know, I'm not the only one taking the brunt of this stress. Uh, and also, you know, it's it's just not fair. And it's like, why is this person able to sort of drive this wedge into my own family? It doesn't make any sense. And so finally, she was like, you know what, you're going to a nursing home. And I'm taking control of all your money. And that's the way it's going to be. And that, that fixed the problem. And it made my mom feel a million times better. And it was a really tough decision because she felt so bad. She's, I remember her saying, like, I feel like a bad daughter and everything. But but at the end of the day, it's kind of like, do you want to be a good sister to somebody who doesn't deserve it, quite frankly, or do you want to be a good mother to your kid who's 13 years old and not trying to get into all this family garbage in the first place?
0: I think you've really brought up a really good point, you know, and a lot of times people don't think about the effect that it has um, on the rest of the family. I'll just share very briefly with you. Uh, I was doing a workshop on relationships in the Virgin Islands last year, and uh And this lady said to me that she always fights with her mother and this lady was maybe in her 40s and her mother's probably in her 60s and argue with her fight with her and and i said well you need to practice a detachment from your mom and just tell her that you can't interact with her anymore and until she's willing to be nice she says i can't do that i love my mom too much two hours later into the workshop she tells me her relationship with her husband is falling apart and i asked i asked her why and she said well I fight with my husband all the time. So what do you fight about? It's like my husband hates the fact that my mother beats me up. Oh yeah. And he, and he wants to talk to my mother, but I won't let him talk to my mother. So we fight. We fight about that all the time. We fight about our mother, and now our relationship is suffering, and then our children are always crying when they see us fighting. So you've got this one person, this one vampire who's the mother who's now affecting this one relationship between the husband and wife, and then the kids. And it's just a a snowball effect, and you just got to pull that one person out of the picture regardless of who they are in your life. It comes down to how much you value your life, you know, Jordan, because once you realize that you're only here for a finite period of time on this planet, you take it seriously. and You want to make the most of it, and you surround yourself with people who are uplifting.
1: Excellent. Well, this is super useful. I think it's something people ask about a lot, is the energy vampire thing, how to detach from people. Is there anything that you want to leave us with that I haven't asked you?
0: So I would say one more thing, uh, Jordan, that I think is really important is a quote that my guru said once, and it's one of my favorite quotes of his. And it goes, there's nothing more important than knowing who you are, the path that you are on, and its final end. And I think this is so important. It's that Again, like I said earlier, you know, we have a finite amount of time on this planet and most people don't really know why they're here or what their purpose in life is. And I think that's one of the greatest things anybody can do for themselves is figure out what their purpose in life is to know what your goal is at the end of the day. Because once you know what your goal is, not literally at the end of the day, but the end of your life, once you know what your goal is, you know exactly what you want to do in this life. And then it becomes really clear as well who you want to have in your life and who you don't want to have in your life. And I think that's going back to the energy vampire, I think, I think that's one of the big reasons why people find it so difficult to detach themselves from these vampires is because they don't really know what they want in life. And if you're really clear what you want in life, then it's very clear to make the right decision, to take the next step.
1: Excellent. Yeah. And I think that's super true. There's, there's no way to decide. A lot of people are sort of floating through life and figuring, "Oh, maybe this will make me happy. Maybe this will make me happy." But once you can get clarity on what it is you want to do and where you want to go, then I think you're you're probably in a, in a really good place in terms of figuring out what's next for you. Because it becomes a lot. There's a lot less. There's a lot fewer shades around it. A lot less sort of attachments and concerns when you don't have all these things pulling you in different directions.
0: I live in New York City, and if I want to go to Los Angeles, I know I need to head west. Not north, not south, not east. And the same way, if you knew what you wanted out of life, it's so easy to make the right next step. I should say that most people don't invest any time in trying to figure out what their purpose in life is. And I think people should do that. And what people should do ideally is take a little time out each week, you know, maybe two, three hours, and if you don't know what your purpose in life is, to reflect and sit down and think and ask yourself some very, very basic questions like, what do I want out of life? Don't say happiness because happiness is not a goal in life. Happiness is a byproduct of doing something or an experience. Happiness should never be your goal of life. Be specific in what it is you're here on this planet for. And once you know that, it becomes really easy to know who and what to surround yourself with and also how to make the next step in your life.
1: Excellent. Thanks so much, Dandapani. And where can people where can people find you and more from you?
0: Uh, yes, so uh, a couple of ways. They can go to my website, which is uh, dandapani.org, and uh, I'll be releasing in a couple of months an online learning course as well, and it's covering a various bunch of topics that, uh, in, about life, from finding a purpose in life, relationships, working with energy vampires, learning how to meditate, focus, developing concentration, willpower. That should be coming up live in a couple of months. And I also have a weekly YouTube video channel uh, called Conversations on the Spiritual Path where people can just send me an email with a question that they have and uh, I'll try and answer it on the weekly YouTube show if I have the answers.
1: Excellent. And if you don't have the answer, you just ignore the email? <laughs> uh, I actually tell people I don't have the answer. Oh, okay. That's probably a better way to do it. Yeah. All right, excellent. Thank you so much for your time. This has been really great, and I know a lot of people are going to get a lot of use out of figuring out how to disconnect from energy vampires, because, again, we talk about it all the time and that it, it needs to be done, but really people don't have a game plan for it. And, of course, when you know you don't know how to do something, you go, I'll work on that later, because if there's any sort of impediment to doing something difficult, people will lean on that really hard.
0: Definitely, for sure. Well, thank you so much for having me on your show. I really appreciate that. It's been a wonderful
1: conversation. That was excellent. I love the story of joining the monastery and getting issued a MacBook Pro, coding some websites. I really think it is interesting how you know, when I met him, I was like, wow, this guy's really normal. Maybe he's maybe he's like a fake monk or something. It, I got to look him up. And it just didn't make sense to me because I was so used to all these fake California woo-woo types being really weird and unrelatable, and it's, it's great to see that real monks aren't like that. And, uh, of course, developing willpower one little piece at a time and managing energy in your relationships, especially with respect to kids, I found really interesting and eliminating energy vampires in our lives. I know a lot of guys have heard me talk about that on this show and heard us at the Art of Trump talk about the importance of that and the inevitability of that when you're trying to become successful. And now we actually have a system for it to do it in an authentic and compassionate way, an affectionate way. So more from Don Dapani at dondapani.org. And I hope you guys enjoyed this show as much as I enjoyed recording it. We'll see you next time. Special thanks to you guys for listening, show feedback, and guest suggestions. We rely on you guys to help keep our finger on the pulse. So if you know someone who's a good fit for the show, let me know, jordanh at theartofcharm.com. And of course, boot camp details there as well. Go ahead and email or call me. Honestly, that's the best way to get in touch, and I'll give you everything you need to know about our programs here in LA. If you guys are listening but you're not subscribed to iTunes or Stitcher, go ahead and make the change there, because getting your shows delivered free to your phone or computer while you sleep is the best way to make sure you don't miss anything. Just go to iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, and search for The Art of Charm. That's it. And if you guys want to write us a nice review, we'll love you forever there as well, because it helps other people find us, and it's really important to keep our show ranks up. So tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. So have a great week, go out there and get social, and leave everything and everyone better than you found them.